Greetings, this is Douglas Kimball, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill, and this is Understanding Edge. I'm joined today on the podcast by Laura O'Dell, the Research Analyst at Diamond Hill that covers biotech and pharma, as well as life science tools and diagnostics. Laura is back on the podcast to join me in discussing the healthcare names that she covers, how they weathered the pandemic, and how they are positioned for the future. You can find her piece at www.diamond-hill.com. As we are hopefully progressing from pandemic to endemic with regards to COVID, I can't think of a timelier guest than Laura, whose background includes an undergraduate degree in biochemistry, a master's degree in immunology, and a master's in business administration from Babson College. Laura spent time as a senior researcher at P&G Pharmaceuticals and was a global program manager at Aventus Pharmaceuticals. We're now back in the office more often than not, but Laura is one of the Diamond Hill team members that was remote before the rest of the world began to do so. I apologize ahead of time for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe and stay healthy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Laura. Laura, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Excited to have you back on to discuss your most recent industry perspectives piece and give us an update on your area of coverage. Yeah, thanks for having me back. First and foremost, uh, let's talk about where we currently stand with regards to COVID. Uh, masks are coming off for the most part, though some are electing to continue wearing them in certain situations. And we're hopefully looking to shift from pandemic to endemic. And I'm going to be lazy and ask, uh, ask you, instead of looking up on the internet, uh, what's the difference between pandemic and endemic? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, the pandemic phase is when we see the rapid spread of the virus, like we saw at the beginning, and we need to take immediate action to prevent death. So with COVID, that action was social distancing, mask requirements. Uh, so you can also consider the pandemic phase to be like an emergency, like a heart attack. It happens suddenly, and we need to take immediate action. But now we're probably entering the endemic phase, and in this endemic phase, We'll still get COVID, but now we have strategies to deal with it. We have tests, we have vaccines, we have treatments. So it's not the crisis that it was before. Um, now that the virus is circulating in the community, we can expect it to be more like the flu. We'll still get sick and some people will get vaccines or even need treatment. But for most of us, it will just be a medical annoyance rather than an emergency. So the analogy to the pandemic phase being like a heart attack is that the endemic phase is more like having high blood pressure. It's something to be concerned about and aware of, but we have treatments, so it's not the emergency situation we had before. Very interesting way of thinking about it. I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to use that more and more. Before we discuss specific names and how they've managed through the pandemic, let's talk more broadly about how you approach the determination of intrinsic value in the healthcare sector. As we've discussed many times on this podcast, Diamond Hill focuses on long-term outlooks when evaluating a company's overall value, but how does one account for something that is so disruptive to both the industry and the overall economy like a pandemic? Simply put, it's almost impossible to try and predict the impact of an event like this on the intrinsic value of a stock. But we can use Abbott as an example of how we think about intrinsic value in the context of a black swan event like this pandemic. We owned Abbott before the pandemic even started. And the reason we owned it is because we liked its strong competitive position. The company has a number of high growth, innovative products that have wide moats. We also liked the excellent management team 
that has a strong long-term track record of making smart capital allocation decisions. So initially when COVID first started, I wasn't comfortable adding in any value from a COVID diagnostic into Abbott's intrinsic value until it was clear that it would truly be a viable product. And since then, I have to admit, there have been a lot of revisions to my estimates. Um, we update our models at least quarterly, and it's hard to predict that the revenue from COVID testing, it felt like uh, trying to hit a moving target this whole time. So generally, I've tried to focus on correctly estimating the value of Abbott's key long-term growth drivers. For example, they have a continuous glucose monitor. It's called Freestyle Libre. This is a device that's about the size of a quarter. You attach it to the back of your arm and it continuously updates your blood glucose level on your phone. So clearly for a diabetic, this type of product is um, essential in the management of diabetes. This area of the business is also really important for the financials of the company. Abbott's diabetes segment was 10% of revenue in 2021 and grew over 30%. So this is a really important area to get the estimates right. Now the company is launching their next generation product in Europe and will follow that up in the US. So this product has years of growth ahead of it, which is why it's so important for the intrinsic value. So this is what I need to get right. So the way I look at it, if we have any more outbreaks of COVID, it's potentially upside for Abbott, but it's not something I worry about estimating perfectly as part of my intrinsic value. One more macro type question before we get into some of the company specific questions. There's been a significant difference between the performance of the NASDAQ biotechnology index and the large cap pharmaceuticals index with the biotechnology index down significantly while the large cap pharma index is in positive territory since the beginning of the year. What are your thoughts on the divergence between the two indices? Yeah, great question. And like you said, this is more of a macro question so it isn't really what we focus on. I mean, as you know, we're bottom-up investors, so we're looking at the individual companies rather than trying to predict macro events. But I get a lot of questions on this topic, so I'm happy to comment on it. So let's start with large-cap pharma. These stocks have been doing relatively well compared to biotech, and it makes sense. They're generally large, diversified businesses that kick off a lot of free cash. Also, investors have viewed these companies as a safe haven during more challenging economic times. And the thought process behind that is that if you need a drug for whatever, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, you're gonna still keep taking that drug even if the economy deteriorates. Also, most large cap pharma companies don't need any external capital. So there are no funding concerns. And most pay a dividend, which is appealing in a down market. So if we contrast this with biotech, most of these biotechs are driven by science and many don't even have any approved products yet, so no revenue. So in order to keep doing their research, they need funding. And when the market is strong, like we've seen since 2014 or so, it's obviously a lot easier to get funding. Um, but I've seen a recent estimate that said that 30% of biotech companies are gonna need additional funding in 2022. So this creates some uncertainty for these companies. And another variable is the rise in interest rates. As investors are looking at biotech valuations, they're thinking about the required rate of return on their investment. And with the rise in interest rates, investment, investors will also demand a higher rate of return from these biotech companies. And when you plug this into a discounted cash flow analysis, that results in a lower intrinsic value today. 
So I don't try and predict what these indices will do going forward, but I would note that most large cap pharma companies are sitting on a lot of cash and they're looking for good acquisition candidates. So as the valuation of these biotech gets more compelling, there's a greater chance that we could see some M&A across the industry. And Pfizer's a good example. Their management team recently stated that they expect to be able to add 25 billion to 2030 sales just from M&A. So some of this M&A has already happened for them, but it implies a lot more acquisitions and that's just Pfizer. In your piece, you mentioned two companies, Abbott and Pfizer, uh, that have directly benefited from the pandemic. We've already talked actually about both so far. Uh, and don't get me wrong, the work that they've done in testing, vaccinating, and treating COVID is part of the process that has gotten us to the point where we may be emerging from a very difficult time. But these businesses are businesses and they exist to generate profit. So how has the pandemic positioned these companies for future success? Yeah, so just in 2020 alone, Abbott sold over 7 billion of COVID tests. And they stated that they're using this excess cash to fund internal R&D and new product launches, uh, which should boost their core business growth in future years. And if we look back at um, or go back to Abbott's diabetes franchise again, as another example, one area they funded has been to develop a continuous glucose monitor, but for the general population. So this type of product might be appealing to somebody looking to get healthier or an athlete that wants to optimize performance. Um, so clearly it could be a very big market opportunity and we can thank those excess COVID profits for allowing Abbott to be able to fund more of these types of innovative products. Pfizer is a similar story. In 2021, they sold over 35 billion of their COVID vaccine. And remember they split this with their partner BioNTech. Pfizer is using most of their excess cash on acquisitions, and they've already started to put this to work with their recent $8 billion acquisition of Arena Pharmaceuticals. But they're also using this excess cash for internal R&D investments. They have so much more experience now with mRNA vaccines, which before COVID was considered an experimental technology. But now they've showed us that this technology can be effective, can be scaled up to billions of doses, and there are opportunities to take this into other viruses. So you can see that both of these companies' efforts in fighting COVID help to generate a nice cash balance for them that they're using now to fund their future growth. Other companies like Stericycle uh, were impacted differently than those that directly benefited from battling the pandemic. Stericycle benefited from the increased use of and need to dispose of personal protective equipment or PPE. Uh, by medical facilities, but then suffered from the drastic measures taken by cruise lines where Stericycle is engaged to dispose of ship-generated medical waste, which just sounds disgusting, but uh, no cruises mean no medical waste to dispose of. Is Stericycle in a good position with cruise traffic ramping back up, along with the demand for medical waste disposal remaining high for medical facilities? Yeah, so first of all, let me just say that Stericycle is a prime example of the type of business we like to own, one with a wide economic moat. They operate in a highly regulated environment, both at the federal and local level. They have long-term contractual relationships with customers, and they have a scale-based business. We're adding additional customers to an already existing infrastructure dropped straight to the bottom line. This makes it hard for potential new competitors to enter the industry and makes it expensive for smaller non-scale businesses to compete at Stericycle's level. But they've had challenges during the pandemic around inflation. The cost of trucks, fuel, and employees is all going up, 
and they operate a large fleet of trucks. So this has been an additional expense for them. Also, they're implementing a new ERP system, which is an enterprise resource planning system. You might have heard of something like SAP. It's a system that allows them to access all of their internal financial records and sales planning to make the business more efficient. And they've unfortunately seen delays in uh, installing this due to staffing levels. However, we see these as short-term concerns, and since we invest for the long-term, these don't concern us. So to answer your initial question, yes, they are poised to leverage their infrastructure more effectively when their customer's activity picks up. And as we know, cruise lines basically shut down during the pandemic. Now that we are entering the endemic phase, uh, cruise lines are getting more confident, they're starting cruises up again, and so this is going to be uh, a way for them to grow their business again. And it's basically the same story with the medical waste from healthcare facilities too. During the peak of the pandemic, uh, patients canceled or put off elective surgeries, and now patients are more comfortable returning to get these types of procedures done. So it's not going to happen immediately, but yes, Stericycle should benefit from society getting back to normal. Another company that you mentioned in your piece is Becton Dickinson, which experienced a mixed bag of outcomes due to the pandemic, much like Stericycle. An increase in the sale of syringes, where they are a market leader in COVID testing, was offset by lower overall hospital volumes. As you mentioned, COVID patient intakes overwhelmed hospitals and reduced non-COVID medical procedures. What are your thoughts on this company going forward? Yeah, so Becton Dickinson is a diversified medical product company. And late last year, we took advantage of the pandemic uh, pullback to acquire the stock at a discount to our intrinsic value of the business. It's an interesting investment as it has a few levers that they can pull to further grow the business. The main one is the relaunch of one of their key products, the Alaris infusion pump. Uh, infusion pumps are devices that deliver medications directly into a patient's vein in the hospital setting. And they were originally leaders in this field, but the Alaris pump has been off the market due to a recall at the FDA. And now they've already done the remediation. They've resubmitted their application to the FDA. Uh, so we're just waiting on FDA approval, but there's a backlog at, at the FDA now. So it's hard to say when this product might get reapproved, um, but I see it as something that's pretty likely. And they have a really good reputation in this area. So once it is approved, I see a strong rebound in sales. Besides that, management is working to optimize the business. For example, they recently spun off their diabetes product segment to be a standalone company called Invecta. The area of diabetes where Invecta competes is pretty commoditized and very competitive. Also, the growth in this segment was lower than the company average and margins were under pressure. So by spinning it off, the rest of Becton Dickinson's business will look better, faster growth and less margin pressure. Also, if Becton can use the proceeds from the spin to fund other R&D or M&A, we can see future growth. And we like the recent acquisitions that the company has been making. Specifically, BD has been focusing on their surgical intervention segments, and these are really good businesses where they can do tuck-in acquisitions and innovative technologies that allow the company to have a more complete product offering. So as you said, the impact of COVID on Becton Dickinson was mixed, but dislocation in the market gave us a chance to buy this company at a discount to intrinsic value. Laura, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. It's always enlightening to have you on as a guest. You know, having the chance to speak with someone with your background and expertise is always informative and helpful. Uh, it was great to be here. 
This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.